welcome to the Property Portfolio Podcast with Mark Stokes and Nigel Green. Every week we inspire and guide you towards success in the world of property development, mentorship and fundraising. Before we jump into today's episode, a reminder to join us at equacademy.co.uk where you can gain free access to hundreds of videos and templates to help you on your property development journey. I'm your host, Mark Stokes, and I'm delighted to introduce Neville Wright for this episode. Welcome, Neville. Thank you very much for having me on this uh, programme. Great. Um, Now, many of our readers and listeners will have heard of you, and many will have read your book, of course, and more of that later. But could you start by giving a little bit of background to yourself? Yes, I um, I grew up in Peterborough, and uh, I found out when I was 40, that I was dyslexic. But obviously this, this had run from when I was um, a child. And uh, so I thought I was dumb, really. And uh, so this uh, dyslexia made me think in a different way because as far as I knew, um, all of the children at the age of seven could read in my class. Uh, but um, I don't think any of them had a job or any money of their own. And uh, so dyslexia drove me to uh, do things a little bit different. So my first job was a milk boy at the age of seven. And this is where I started earning money. And uh, to, I suppose to compensate for the um, the lack of being able to read and write and um, uh, stuff like that. So uh that was the early days and when I left school at 15 I got a job because that's what's expected or that's what was expected of people to to get a job and to earn a living and that's it and and then I had a series of jobs mostly six months nine months and then I thought I knew it all wherever I was I knew it all, and uh, they hadn't made me managing director in that time, so um, I went to another job, and and so on. Or I got found out that I couldn't um, read, and so I ran. I either got pushed out or I ran with embarrassment. And um, at the age of 24, uh, the the road ended because there was a recession in 1974. 73, 74, we was living in a 10-foot caravan. I say we, my wife and I, and we had a three-year-old daughter then, and we was living in a 10-foot caravan. So um, I had uh, no job. I was on the dole, and there was no chance of getting a job. There's millions unemployed. Uh, so I, um, I retired from mainstream work, and with... Um, with no money, 37 pence, I uh, bought a piece of scrim and I started uh, cleaning windows, borrowed my father's ladder and it, it wasn't ever going to be a window cleaning round because there was a ceiling to the amount of money you can get if you repeatedly do something over and over again and it takes your time up that's a window cleaning round. It was going to be a window cleaning business. So what's window cleaning? It's maintaining property. So it's a maintenance business. And so from the first day, people would would ask me to do other jobs. And this, it wasn't planned. This just fell into place. So the first day I was cleaning windows and the second day and the third day, somebody said, do you clean gutters? And, and that's where my book title come from. The answer is yes. Now, what is the question? So the answer was always yes, whatever they asked me to do. As long as it wasn't immoral or illegal in my eyes, the answer was yes. So um, mending fences, digging holes, you know, putting drains, well, cleaning drains, not putting drains in because I, I, I hadn't got that capability, you know, uh, in those days. It was... Um, basic, basic stuff. But the answer was always yes. And so, you know, the, the jobs got um, better. They got more. You, you could clean windows for 30 pence a house, but you could clean gutters for two pounds. You could um, unblock drains for like 
six pound, you know, and, and, and so it went on. So uh, that's, that was the start of um, that business, which is still going, started in 1974 and it's still going today. Uh, we don't clean windows, but we needed to, we would. And, um, and then in 1976, oh, we had uh, saved enough money, about 300 pounds, to start another business. And again, this just fell into place because we didn't want another business. What we wanted was an office to run the property maintenance side that was growing. And, uh, and my wife said, well, the house, the terrace house that we'd bought for, uh, for an office, uh, we'd got some extra room. And she said, and I've got some extra time, we could do something. Well, we decided on secondhand prams. And the reason was because we'd had a baby and we'd bought a second-hand pram and a second-hand cot and a second-hand high chair. So we knew everything there was to know about the nursery business, so we thought. <laughs> so with, um, people say ignorance is bliss, and sometimes it is, because if you thought too much about the things, you, you, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't go into business if you thought too much, and people overanalyze stuff. So... That went from a second-hand shop um, selling prams. And so, first of all, we was going to just concentrate on prams. But before we'd opened the shop, when we'd been to people's houses to buy their second-hand pram, they said, well, I've got a cot for sale. I've got a high chair. I've got, I've got some clothes. And we said, we don't, don't, no, we don't want clothes. And they'd give you the clothes to get rid of them. So we had to try and get rid of them in the shop and we realized there was a market for that kind of thing. And so within a few months, we started selling new product. And we built that shop uh, into the largest uh, nursery retailer uh, independent in, in the UK. And we, we sold along the way. We built shops, built businesses and sold them. And we sold four of those businesses. And, and the latest, the last one that we sold was um, for £70 million in cash, which I believe is a world record for a, a mum and dad nursery shop. And we only had one shop on the internet. And, um, and so that was a world record. Since then, we've built, and that was in 2011, we've built 600 houses, um, converted quite a few offices into apartments, and... Um, we have 140 industrial tenants on our portfolio. So, and we've sold other businesses in that time as well. So there we are. That's kind of my story in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Really? Well, I think we could speak all day just off. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's incredible. Incredible success, incredible diversity. And, and what certainly strikes me is, you're not afraid to sniff out and seek the opportunity and grab the opportunity when it presents itself. There's opportunities all around. And um, it's really, I suppose, like being a kid in a sweet shop. Uh, there's, you know, there's everything around. There's opportunities. Only some people have their eyes closed uh, to the opportunities. And, um, and some people say, well, I could have done that, but they couldn't because they didn't. Mm. And, and, and that, is, that is the difference. And there's, there's, there's a group of people who are self-employed, or which are fine, and there's a group of people that's employed that are absolutely fine, but there's a group in between that are always agitated. They always want what the thing, things that um, are out there but they don't want to do anything to get them. Mm. And um, that's, that, that's life, it is. So, but the opportunities are all around. And of course, if you're in something, then you see the opportunities, what's attached to that business. And people say, well, I, I, I would have wanted to do that. If I'd have seen that opportunity, I, I, I could have done that. But they can't because you have to be in it to... to to win it, really. Yeah, there's a phrase from the telly, I think. Um, that sense of full immersion when you, I mean, you've, it comes across in, in bucket loads in, in your book, 
you are working incredibly hard and tenaciously in every business. It's been it's been you, hasn't it, in your in your very DNA. If if you're going to spend your life doing something, you might as well do it the best you can and put more effort in. And well, all I was doing, and and I think it was the same for my wife as well, was competing against ourselves. Yeah. Nobody else wasn't competing against other companies, although people thought we were. We were just competing against ourselves and, and, and trying to strive for continual improvement. And, and it's great. And yes, it was. There's a lot of hard times. But once you're in it, you know, you, you've, you've got to keep going. Yeah. And then when you employ people, you're then responsible, not just for your family, but uh, I, I had an altercation um, when I was on the dole. I was asking the person on the other side of the counter for an extra two pounds a week. And he says, no, you can't. And I said, look, I'd like to, I'd like to try window cleaning and, and I'd like you to give me the dole money and I'll tell you how much I get each week. And when I've exceeded what you give me, then I'll leave. They said, you can't do that. And, and so I shot myself in the foot. I told him what he could do with his um, doll money. And, and off I went. And that was, uh, that was a turning point, really, because I had to look after my Because I said to him, if the government can't look after me, my employers couldn't look after me, then I'll look after my family myself. Now, do you think there's a, a chance in a million that I'm going back begging to that guy and he's going to say, you was here before, you know, I knew you'd come back. Yeah. There is not a chance in a million that I'd ever do that. And so that just drove me on because of the fear of having to go back and embarrass myself begging, you know, for the, for the doll. And um, so, so that was a real driving force. And that was never far away from me for years and years and years that I could land up on the dole. And this is why I needed, I suppose, in subconsciously, a great deal of money. But doing the things, the money come along as a byproduct of doing the things that I began to enjoy because I didn't, I've never cleaned a window in my life, you know, and I didn't know whether I'd enjoy it or not. And I didn't really. I only did it because I wanted to eat. So it's a means to an end. But gradually you find something. People will say, well, I don't know whether to do this or that. There's, there's a thousand things that young people can do, but they won't make up their mind. But un unfortunately, you have to do something. So you might as well do something, even if you don't like it, but tell yourself it's the best job in the world. Because if you do that and you know you probably won't be doing it tomorrow or in a week's time. But if you do it the best you can do, then you start to enjoy it. And then you go on to something else. But I think people think too long. They think, oh, I've got to do this job for the next 50 years and I hate it. But if they thought, if thought in a different way, yeah. and, and I believe that's um, where my dyslexia come in, I had to think outside the box. I had to think in a different way to get over the problems that uh, I was continually having. That um, strikes me as a real, real frame of mind where not necessarily the, uh, not being fearful of, well, but being very fearful of, of failure, but actually the courage to, to actually make a start. And I think sometimes that's the biggest challenge is actually taking that first step. I do say in my book, um, Becoming self-employed is like standing on the, the top of the, the highest diving board and, um, and going to dive into freezing cold water because you never, you never want to do it. You never want to take that leap. But um, as I say, once you're in, then the water's not so cold. And, but that is the fear of, of making that leap. And if you've got a good standard of living, you've got more fear of losing that. And continually people say, I'm not risking my house. 
you know, I'm not risking this, I'm not risking that. Um, and I'm, I'm, and they're always saying, oh, well, I, I draw my pension in 15 years' time. Well, you could have made two or three businesses in that time, mm. you know, and it's, um, and it's that fear of loss. Now, if you haven't got anything, if your standard is a 10-foot caravan, and by the way, it did have running water, that caravan. It was the condensation every morning that run down. <laughs> so people used to say, how are you getting on in that caravan? I'd go, oh, it's great. It's got running water. <laughs> so the lower your standard, the more uh, opportunity there is for success because you've got nothing to lose. If you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah. So who was the, the first person who influenced your entrepreneurship? My father. And he said, when I was four, I, I used to meet him at the top of our road. I used to walk to the top of our road uh, when I was four. You could, you could let a four-year-old out in those days, 1954. There was no fear of anything. So I used to walk to the top of the road. There was no cars. Only the doctor had a car in our street, and that was it. And then he used to put me on his bicycle in the basket at the front because he used to come home for lunch. And, I, and he used to cycle home. And then when we went back, when he had finished his lunch, he used to drop me off at the end of the street. And opposite, uh, this is uh, opposite the street, there was a a shop, a furniture shop. And he used to say to me, the man who owns that furniture shop wanted me to go into business with him because my dad was a, a carpenter and cabinet maker, French polisher. And he'd had apprenticeship and he knew what he was doing. And he said, um, he wanted me to go into business with him, but I've got three children and I'd got a stable job and I was afraid, but I should have. And right from the age of four, I heard this, I should have. And I said when I was probably 15, I will never, ever say I should have. I'll take that out of my vocabulary. And so he was the first person to encourage me. He didn't say he should go self-employed. That never come into the conversation. What he was saying, he should have. And that's what en encouraged me for start, motivated me. So as you became more successful, what, what inside you drives you to go to that next level continuously? Clearly being very successful with a lot of hard work in many of your business endeavours. What drives Neville Wright now moving forward? What today? Yeah. Some statistician said that, uh, this is just one example, said that... Um, if the government changed and a government came in and said all the rich people should give 90% of their assets to the poor people to equal it out because everybody in the world can be a millionaire, apparently. I don't know this, but apparently there's enough money to go around for everybody to be a millionaire. If all the rich people give 90% of their wealth away to the poor, poor people, in the majority of cases, in five years' time, all the money would have gone back to the rich people. So what drives me is there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there and, and the more wealthy the community, the society, the country is, the better it is for everyone. So there's a lot out there. And if you want to work with the aim of uh, improving everybody's lot, then why should I carry inside me to my grave all the experience I've had? Why not give it to somebody else? And it's a shortcut because it would have been nice for somebody to give it to me. Whether I'd have taken any notice of it, um, I definitely wouldn't have taken any notice probably until I was 24. But after that, I believe your brain kicks in and you've matured up to 24 people go, act your age, you're acting like a kid. Well, you are a kid, you know, that's it. They, they're acting like they should do. But after 24, you've got your responsibility, kicks in. And, and I would have taken notice because I was like a sponge after that. 
I wanted to know what everybody else had to say. But there was very few people that would tell you. In fact, and I didn't really get anybody to tell me. But now there's opportunities for people like myself who will share that information if people want to take any notice of it. So that's what drives me, I suppose. And what's drove me in the past is the... The, all the little things, the day-to-day, the hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute goals that you have. I must do the most productive thing possible at every given moment, 12 words that, you know, will stick with me forever. I, I learned that in 1980. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's things that stick with you. It's like Muhammad Ali, an interviewer said, um, Ali, if you wasn't the world champion boxer, what would you do? What would you be? And he said, I could be anything. I, I would, if I was a garbage collector, I would be the world champion garbage collector. I would collect more bins than anybody else. I would collect them before my opponents ever got out of bed. And, you know, that resonated with us in 19, I think that was in the 1960s. But that was it. That went into my brain. And it's, and it, because I was dyslexic and people used to say I was dumb, that went in, that it resonated with me if I was a garbage collector, and that was kind of my standard. I thought, well, when I grow up, I'll be a dustman or something like that. So, and if Muhammad Ali was telling me that that was great, that you could be the best dustman in the world, then, then that's what motivated me to say, you know, any, anybody who does any job, if they do it, the best of their ability and then some more and learn if you're digging a hole don't dig it like a upside down pyramid dig it with square you know dig it with dig it with uh, vertical sides and a flat bottom and and be proud of it so it really resonates you know if people somebody uh, uh said i don't know whether i read it in a book or saw it on the television whatever but somebody said a young man wanted a job they said well, I've got some sandbags to fill and he, was, he wasn't interested. He was filling them, but he wasn't interested. He didn't take any pride. And he says, well, it's only sandbags. But, but if you take pride in filling a sandbag and, and tying it up properly and, and sitting it properly wherever it belongs, um, along a dike or whatever it is, then, you know, you've got pride and you do that job. And then the person will give you a better job and a better one, a better one, or you'll do it yourself you know so that's where it all comes from that combination of a very very strong work ethic and a, and a real strong ambition as well in, in life as well i'd never class it as work I, I just class it as you know a game really because that you play in life and and i do say you know you dealt with a set of cards or or given a set of tickets and you can go into this fun fair because that's what it is you know it's a big fun fair and you have to play the rides and and to get through the park and the thing is a lot of people stop with their tickets in their hand and they won't go on the uh the ghost train they won't go on the tower of terror they won't go on certain things because they're they're afraid of um they want they want life easy they want to coast but get everything out of it and and uh, have you ever seen or heard of any uh, sportsman man lady whatever um, who's good in their game at the top of their game not having that attitude of beating themselves you know not not coast they none of them can coast. they wouldn't get anywhere if they coast no. coasted you know but why do they make that effort why do they go through you know running a hundred miles in in a day you know why do people do it you know there's there's something in people to succeed and um and it's good so it was never really work it was we needed to earn money to put food on the table but then, you know, after that, when you started getting some money, then you started using the money as a byproduct uh, to to do other things. Well, that, that strikes a real personal chord with myself. My passion is ultra-endurance running. 
So Is I, it? I have run 100 miles in 24 hours. Wow, congratulations. Across the Sahara Desert and various other things. Um, and f- from my perspective, it's that passion of not, not leaving anything on the table and really trying to find out what I'm humanely capable of, of, of achieving. I guess dipping the, the bottom of the reserve tank and uh, and many parts of society never get the chance to really challenge the awesome power of connecting your, your mental focus with your physical capability. I, I think uh, a lot of people miss out on life because they haven't heard people speak. They They haven't been involved with anybody who's motivated to do these things. And and you only need one little spark. You only need somebody to say one sentence to you that can change your life. And um, and that if they miss out or if they don't open their ears, you know, don't want things because you have to want. Yeah. You know, there's got a, there's a want and need. And um, you, you yeah. mentioned a, a phrase which I, I, I hugely enjoy and I, I've really saved it for many years and that's um, we're only competing with what we're capable of. And in the ultra-endurance community, absolutely, in any of the races that I attended um, and raced in, probably only the top 5% were after an actual position. The other 95% were doing it for themselves. Yes. And every single one uh, of those men and women, or, or boys and girls, had a personal goal, a goal very personal to them. Only they would know. And that might have been just finishing the race, you know, whether they were running, walking, crawling, but they never stopped. Yes, yeah. You have to have goals and you have to set your goals early and frequently. And and I would urge anybody to have a scribbling pad and write the goals down today and write your 50-year goals, your 40, your 30, your 20, well, probably from 20 to 50 years, there, there is the same goal. It's quite easy, you know, to have a, a goal for that. But then you've got your 10-year goals, which are very crucial. And uh, and then you now goals. And I would urge people to write them all down, probably have 20 goals, and keep the pads. I never kept the pads because one, most of it was in my mind. And the stuff that I did write down I could look at it the next day and, and I didn't know what I'd wrote because it was just, that, that was, that was me. But I would urge anybody who can write to write them down and keep them, keep them forever, never throw them away. And I've been dreadful at throwing stuff away. And, um, and those goals should be reevaluated, should change as you, as you go along and you make, and, and they're crucial to everybody to have these goals uh, and there's lots of categories you know yourself your family your friends uh, finances um, your fitness you know, all that type of stuff goals you should have the goals for all these things and then you should have a subcategories of knowing what to do what you're going to do to get those goals and you know people say oh, oh, oh I'm going to get a Rolls Royce in five years. Well, if that's what they want, that's fine. But what kind of Rolls Royce is it? What color is it going to be? Have you got a picture of it? Can you put it into your mind? And and how much is that Rolls Royce going to be? And how are you going to get it? How are you going to make that money uh, and put to one side to get it? And it's like detail. So have your goals, but have your detail for your goals. There's two best goals for me. My, my goal is a 50-year goal. And at the age of 67, my 50-year goal is, oh, I'd like to be around <laughs> as long as I'm fit. That's the subcategory, as long as I'm fit. Um, and my major goal is my minute-to-minute goal, talking to you right now, imparting as much information in the shortest time for people to go, wow, I've got that. You know, and, and, and for them, probably in another 20 years' time, 30 years' time to be talking to somebody else and go, I heard this guy on the radio, whatever it is, you know, I heard this guy on the podcast and he said this and changed, changed my life. So that's, that's where we are with the goals. Brilliant. Brilliant. And cast our minds to, to the younger generation. If you take my, 
my Emily, uh, I know you have you have daughters. Mm. My, my my youngest child, Emily, um, she's uh, seven. So oh, I've, brilliant! I've got ten or eleven or twelve very precious years until she's until she probably leaves home. So one of the things that I probably wished I'd known more of many years ago would be compounding. Yeah. Looking back on your successes and and maybe things that haven't been quite successful over the years, have you any thoughts on how we can start to inspire our younger younger generation at a very early age to start very gently involving them and engaging them in in business and and life in general, which will manifest itself later down the line very positively. The opportunities in the nineteen fifties were were great because nobody was afraid of letting their children out. So everybody had a job, everybody had a paper round, everybody had a milk round or an errand boy's job, that kind of stuff. People need to work, they need to have discipline and they need to, need that discipline they need is constant and work is one of the great things because it's no good putting somebody out of school at the age of 18 that's never done a day's work in their life and never had any uh, of their own money that they've earned themselves. And seven is a good age. Now, I'm not saying, well, there's no milkman around now anyway, so you can't, you can't send a seven-year-old out on the streets because there is so much uh, has changed. You know, for a start, there was no cars around. There was horse and carts when I was a kid. And, um, but they need to understand money. And they don't teach, as far as I know, they don't teach about finances in schools, but you need to teach finances. And the only way is to give them jobs around the house, around the garden. Now, if they work, you pay them for every hour. And, and if they don't, they get nothing. And then if they work, you pay them and, and you make this a constant. And then, and then they can do what they like with the money. Because a lot of people say, well, I'll give my kids money, but I'm not letting them spend it on junk. Now, junk food, yeah, okay, but I'm talking about junk. They've got to decide what they want. And all of a sudden, they become particular on what they want to buy. And so I would encourage a wage packet, and I would, I would call it a wage packet, and put it in an envelope, and every Friday night or whatever, you give them the wage packet, uh, with it listed on what jobs they've done, how much they got, and then it's theirs to go out on a Saturday and uh, to choose whether they go to the cinema or whether they go to, I don't know, wherever, and buy whatever. And and that... Knowing they work really hard for that money. Yes, and yes. they make mistakes, aren't they? Yes, and, and um, they, they learn. Mm. So that was it. My children started very early on because we had the shop and uh, but at the age of 10 there was either going to work in the shop and get paid or there wasn't going to get paid there wasn't going to have any money if they didn't work and we'd say well we can't leave you at home because that's against the law so you'll have to come and then they made up their mind well while I'm here I might as well do something and of course that in that gets inbred into the work ethic and you don't want idle people because they don't know they don't know what to do and they just get into mischief so that's what i would recommend start paying them as early as possible for the little jobs right and that that will build them some some um, some equities and some savings yeah. there and, and that's that's another thing that um, my wife and i we're, we're continuously looking at what do you then do with their savings? Um, because I, I was just doing some analysis. If my Emily's got a thousand pounds in her account at seven years old, by the time she's eighteen, that'd be worth eleven hundred pounds if it's in the bank, which is uh, not a particularly savoury thought. Um, and equally, it doesn't really teach our children much to just save their money and just leave it in the hands of somebody else. No. So it's. It, and this is what inspiring a young entrepreneur is all about, that breeding ground of ideas, of confidence to, to actually make a, make a change, make a difference. Yes. Um, and now you did something, you, you went into quite a bit of detail in, in the book on 
how you engage your t- two daughters. Yes. Right? How you engage your two daughters in the business, and, and they became very important parts of your business. They did. They? Very important. Can you maybe explain how you, because you challenged the tradition and the traditional system, didn't you? Yes. Um, one of them didn't want to go to school, and I thought, I wonder where they got that from. But I didn't want to go to school either. And um, so we took her out of school at um, 13, nearly 14. And she came into the shop. Well, she never used to go to school. She used to go into one of the shops because at the time we had three shops. And, um, and, and the shop was in the same complex as a school. So they knew where she was. They knew she wasn't getting up to any mischief. Uh, and she was working. And um, so eventually we agreed that we'd take her out of school. And uh, and then the second one was um, bullied. She had to change school mid, mid-term from a really, really nice school where uh, most of the forces children used to go, where their parents was uh, abroad. And... Um, she was in that school and it was and it, and it closed down overnight and we had to put her into a girls school with a thousand pupils and um it's like at 13 12 13 she was rejected in her class and, and she became anorexic and um i took her out of that and i we we taught her ourselves in the shop so so that's where you know that that comes from and i would recommend that if people are having problems with their children, if they can possibly teach them themselves, I feel it's better. And if you have a business, then you can bring the children into a business and it's helping them. And it's, um, it, it's really good because we had a lot of managers. We had uh, a lot of different departments from fork truck driving to accountancy and serving customers and buy-in, uh, photography, you know, we, and, and they went through all the departments. They did. Really? So, apprenticeship and, in, in business? Yes, well. yeah. And, you know, it's a family business. So the idea was for it to be a family business, you know, and you, you, you grow up and you want, well, we wanted, Marilyn and I wanted to work together um, because apart we was weak. Marilyn was a very shy uh, but intelligent girl and, and and I had a mouth on me but uh, I was dumb you know and uh, and that was the kind of thing so to apart we was nothing but together we're strong and then when you have the family in and your children grow up into this environment they become strong and they become part of uh, the business as well as being in the family. Over the years, you, you touched on it very briefly in your introduction. You mentioned uh, you have one shop, but you also then embrace the internet as well. And of course, our, our youngsters have got a whole different global marketplace to, to what existed back in the 60s and 70s. So you must have seen a lot of change in terms of marketing and sales strategies that you've had to be very uh, tenacious with. We decided to um, to go into the internet. Um, it was just one day out of the blue, and we was on holiday. And I said, um, this thing called the internet, 1997, this thing called the internet is going to take off sooner or later. And uh, people will be buying their prams online. Well, that was like pie in the sky. That was like unbelievable. Why anybody would want to buy a pram uh, that they'd never seen and you you shipped it to them. Um, It was just a flippant remark, but it was like, that is the future. And you've got to always keep looking into the future and, and, and altering your business. I say, if you go, if you are in business... And if you if you work for somebody as as well, when you go in at eight o'clock in the morning, the business is what it is. But if you come out at five o'clock at night, that business should have changed, even if it's a little bit. And whether you're employed, uh, you should have changed. You should have learned something in that eight hours. You should have 
come out with more knowledge that day than you went in. And the business, again, from eight o'clock in the morning to five o'clock at night, that business should have changed slightly. If it hasn't, what's happened? Somebody else's business has in your same sector and you're giving your business away and you don't know who you're giving it to, but you are giving it away. And one day when sales go down and things happen and you go, I wonder why, how come I've gone down and this person's business is booming, yet we're in the same industry in the same town. So you always have to keep on developing and changing. So uh, the, the internet came along and in 1999, Christmas 1999, we opened the first um, site and we had one sale. And the next day we had one sale and, and you know, then uh, eventually we was having 10,000 sales a week so that's you know that's the way things things go but it wasn't all plain sailing at all because in those days people uh, manufactured stuff they put it in a, a two-ply cardboard box and they sent the delivery to your shop and then you gave it to the customer and that was fine but nobody had thought that that box on the internet would move eight times from the manufacturer to the customer eight times. And and the time got to the customer with the carriers in those days, because carriers wasn't used to carrying small stuff to houses. It was ruined. We was having 70% back. So it was us really who developed the thicker boxes, the better packaging that the industry had to adopt. And they wouldn't adopt to it just for us, so we had to make our own. We had to repackage everything. So gradually, you know, the industry changed. So we went through lots of lots of things. People wouldn't give their credit cards over um, it, it, on the internet. So very few people would would do that. But they would look at it, and then they would come in store. So yeah, there is a lot of um, the, the world has changed in in that respect. But a lot of people won't make up their mind what they want to do. Shall I do this? Shall I do that? I've got a thousand things I can do on the internet. And there's so many things of, you know, just get on and do something. Whatever it is, just do it. Just the first thing you think about because people procrastinate. And this is one of the, one of the things that is most common, procrastination, is, um, you know, I, I joined the procrastinators club, but I can't make up my mind. You know, it's, yeah. that is, that's rife, you know, with people. A very common theme that I've picked up across many areas that you speak so eloquently and passionately about is, is the real joy you get and, and passionate customer service. And I wonder, reflecting on how the younger generation are interacting now with new social media, virtual friendship circles. I know my children play maybe the Xbox quite a lot and on Snapchat and social media. How, how our children are there? They're growing up in a different era where, where face-to-face contact is less and the customer service skills and interpersonal skills are, are changing. And I, I do wonder how, how our children will embrace that. They will inevitably have to embrace that. Um, but customer service has been right at the heart of you growing a very successful, of all of your very successful businesses. Yes. So, so um, I think the schools have a lot to play in this and don't accept what their children are saying if it's not right. Mm. So it's um, determination through the school, the curriculum, to, to enforce that um, they teach people these skills, life skills, mm-hmm. and, um, and role play, and, and, and the words that they're saying. So, so things do change, but um, you'll always be like interacting with people because that's, the, that's life, you know. And if you want to make a business, you've got to be good at interacting with people. And again, I knew that 
if I did what the customers asked, I would win. And if I didn't do what the customers asked, I'd fail. It's very simple. Bring it down to a very basic level. If I upset this customer, they're not going to deal with me. They'll deal with somebody else. If somebody else upsets the customer in another business, they're going to deal with me because I'm going to be nice. Why am I nice? Because I need I need their business. And you are, you've either got it, I think, or haven't. And if you haven't got it, if you're rude and nasty and don't like people, then don't go into retail. Don't know what you could go into, but you, but you've you've got to change your attitude, you know. And and that is something that we all have failed in, I think, um, at some time in our life. And that attitude, and uh, your your attitude will determine your altitude. Was customer loyalty was that a key part of the, the growth of your business? Oh right, yes. Yes, we. I, I read a book, um, Ken Blanchard, uh, called Raving Fans. And we'd been practicing this, but um, I bought 100 books and I give, it, give each one to the staff. It was just reinforcing, basically, what I was already doing to say, hey, this is, it, it's not me. You know, don't think I'm a tyrant. There's other people. You know, it's uh, called Raving Fans. What do we want? Do you want a customer... No. You want a happy customer? Yes. Do you want a raving fan? Yes. What is the difference between a customer and a raving fan? Right, a customer will come in and they'll buy something and they'll take it home and they're happy. A raving fan is somebody that will come in, they'll buy something, they'll take it home and they're going to tell the world what fantastic service they got, what brilliant what a brilliant company, and they're going to say, there's only one place to go, and this is the place. Don't go anywhere else. Forget everywhere else. Now, and, and that's it. We, we didn't want every customer in a two-hours radius of our shop. We just wanted the next one who's going to buy Pram. So that was, a, that was a goal. And why should you let a customer down? So I used to stand probably 30, 40 feet away from the door with new people and their manager and say to the new person, do you know what that customer wants as they come through the door? And they go, I don't know. Pram? No, 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 no. And, and then there would perhaps be half a dozen new starters and you go, but the next person coming through the door, what do they want? I know what they want. Do you, well, do they want a cup of tea? Because we had a cafe in the shop. Do they, do they want a, uh, a, a high chair? Do they want, I'm going, no, 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 no. They only want one thing. Every single customer, 3,000 customers a day, they all want one thing. And go, what do they want? We've got 17,000 items. What do, what's the one thing they want? They want a salesperson to sell them something. That's all they want. They want to go into a shop and they want to be greeted with somebody with knowledge you shouldn't go in a shop as a customer knowing more about the product than the salesperson so that's number one the salesperson should know far more about the product should know everything about the product and can educate the customer now they shouldn't let the customer down so they are just looking for a salesperson to sell them something sell them the right thing I'm not saying, you know, uh, snake oil. I'm saying you should tell them what fits. Don't disappoint a customer. Have the knowledge. So all of our staff was trained with the knowledge. And that's how we started. That customer is looking for a salesperson to sell them something. Now you need to know what all of our products do, why we're here, and, and how we can help the customer. Drawing out the need of yes. the client. Yes, yeah. 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 So, um, so out, of the, out of the many businesses and opportunities that you've seized with both hands, failure comes to us all from time to time, or you've really grasped the nettle a number of times. Um, can you think of any areas where um, things maybe haven't worked out quite as well as you'd hoped and what you've learned and then helped in helped transforming your journey? The... The thing 
is that you're learning all the time and and you're learning how not to do things that's the that's the basic way of looking at it i think you're learning what works and what doesn't work so we used to spend some time on whatever project uh, whatever we was going to do and implement it and i used to say if it doesn't work in 10 minutes let me know because something you know in, in a production line something is not going to be right the cardboard box is not going to be in the right places the sellotape is not going to be in the right places they need some equipment you know and all that kind of thing so it's a continual process so somebody might go well we made a mistake you know that doesn't work but why doesn't it work and how do you put that right and um and and you just get over this on a daily basis you don't let it fester you don't let it um, go on and I suppose everybody will make losses at um, some time or other but it doesn't mean it's a mistake I mean we've made some huge losses on on uh, different product and property and some huge gains now some of the time you can't understand what the government's doing you know what um the people are doing with mortgages and uh or they put stamp duty on and and you've and you're in the middle uh, and a recession hits and it hits you like you're running into a brick wall you can't legislate for that but it happens and then you have to adapt to those circumstances and you have to make those decisions and sometimes we've We've bought things. I remember we bought a house years and years ago, 1989, I think it was, when the recession hit. But we'd said we'd buy it. So we bought it as 50,000. And and I was trying to get it converted in a shop and couldn't, went to appeal, didn't happen. The wall was falling out of the gable end was falling out and I sold it for 25,000. So... I'm going to say something what my father said. Should have, should have kept it because that's worth, uh, the gable end didn't fall out. It's still there. I, I see it most days and um, it, it's worth about 250,000 now. So, and there was a tenant in it. So I panicked. So that's what happens. And, um, but it's a good lesson. It is. Yeah. So you're learning all the time. I don't uh, think there's many failures. There's, a, there's an awful lot of learning. There is. And, uh, and you pay for it. Many of those learnings that you've had been involved in, what, is it about 40 years you've been involved in property? In one form? From 1966, when I first met my wife, uh, we decided uh, after like about six weeks, we decided we was um, going to get married, spend the rest of our life together, we'd have children and we'd get a house. And so the order was, well, let's get a house. And um, so from 1966, we was looking at, at houses. And in 1968, we bought our first house, which was uh, 650 pounds. And people say, do you think uh, in property is a good investment? Well, I can't get any more houses at six hundred and fifty pounds. <laughs> yeah, that house is probably worth about I don't know one hundred and ninety thousand at the moment. Um, but if I'd have kept that as a home, it'd been worth one hundred and ninety thousand. If I'd have um, rented it out, it'd have paid for the original was well, six fifty plus renovating it is a thousand pound. It would have paid for itself every 60 days uh, now. And, um, but when you say about what should you tell your children and compounding and all that kind of stuff, we add it as a home, but we also as an investment. So we didn't stay in there. We went after the day it was uh, renovated, we moved to the next house, to an unrenovated house. But instead of a terraced house, we went to a semi-detached house. And that £650 accumulated over the years 
we've we've had sixteen million pounds off that. So that's compound, that's compounding and working. The com- you know, it's not it's not saying well, I'm getting eight percent a year off that, and I'll just let it grow. Mm-hmm. It is compounding interest plus investment plus um, working on that project. So that's you know, powerful. yes. And one of the challenges that I'm trying to unlock with with my children and, and the, the children uh, in, in, with my fellow directors is how we can engage them in, in property in a very meaningful way at their tender ages. Bearing in mind there, some of them are eight, nine, <laughs> ten, some of them in their teens. Get them to play Monopoly. Monopoly. <laughs> We're doing that only at the weekend. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it is difficult because children don't take any notice of their parents so you've got an uphill struggle Um, they'll take notice of other parents but not their own Um, the children's minds are children and they're very few and far between that if you try and um, educate them in property and start to give them property for instance and expect them to uh, keep it you're onto a loser because as soon as they get to a, an age where they're free they'll sell it and they'll go and buy a car or whatever you know so there is time education and time you know go hand in hand they you, I wouldn't worry about it too much get the ethic of work and money and you can tell them about property but it it probably won't mean a thing until they're ready for it everything comes when you're ready we're doing this interview you know if you'd have asked me 10 years ago i wouldn't have done it i i wasn't ready for that this part of my life and the children are not ready to become an adult buying and selling property when they're when they're children you know, they're, they're, they could be an entrepreneurial streak, like they're making lemonade and selling it on the front lawn, things like that. But, um, and that's good because that's a child thing and you've got to keep, you've got to keep the entrepreneurship to the age group. Yeah. And, you know, if you draw me a picture, then I'm sure we can sell that for 10p. So a kid draws a thousand pictures and you say, I'll sold them, I'll sold them, you know. Okay. <laughs> but it encourages them. But you can't say to like a seven-year-old, um, you know, this I've got you a house. Now expect to um now I expect you to collect the rent every month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, gen- gentle steps, isn't it? Yeah. It's where they belong. So you books have been a, a key part of, of your learning as well as the you know, degree in life that you have um could you recommend one book for our listeners yes my book the answer is yes now what's the question and i only say that because i'm not i I like to push the book because there's so much in there for people there it's it's not uh you don't spend 20 pound on the book and that's it it's a 20 pound investment that will reap you millions and millions of pounds because i have done it I've been there and every word is mine. Every word is true and everything is, is what can be done. And um, it's so that's why I want to get it out. I don't take the money for it. It goes to a charity called Lend With Care, which has been going 70 years, um, helping startups in uh, different countries. And, um, and so that's a book i mean i've got hundreds of books i've i've uh, read hundreds of books and the you don't have to get a book now because you you can get the you get it on audio my book's on audio and it's on um kindle as well well you you see i would always recommend that i would recommend the book because it's got a lot of pictures in and it's got a, a a lot you can understand and it's like a reference book as well so you can keep going back to it. Whereas um, the audio book, 
I, I like, I've listened to audio, listened to CDs and listened to tapes since 1980. Never had the car radio on. I do occasionally now because I like music. But the thing is, music is not going to give me any money. But so for 30 years, I only listened to stuff that was going to make my business better, make me better, make it grow, give me ideas. So... Uh, I think it's great. It was, took about 20 minutes to get to the shop and 20 minutes back. And that's 40 minutes a day. I was listening to that. And then I very often listen to it all night. But um, it it's um, leveraging your time. So wherever you go, why not leverage your time and listen to some motivational stuff that you can, if you want things in life, then you need the money. And it's, it's like people go, I don't... I don't need any money. Money's not my God. Yeah, I go, okay, so when the National Health packs up, who's going to give you the operation that's costing you uh, £100,000? Who's going to give you, say you want a new set of teeth in another 20 years, that's that's going to cost you, and nowadays it's like £20,000. So if you haven't got that to dip into and not even think twice about it, then there's, there's something wrong. You're relying on other people. And what you need is reoccurring income, passive income. So you need income when you're sleeping. And, you know, that's what I teach in the, in the book uh, because that's what, we've, that's what we've done. As we, as we draw to a close, I really appreciate your time. Could you maybe pick out just, just one piece of advice you'd give to, to your younger self, um, which I'm sure will resonate with many of the, the young people listening to this podcast? I suppose if I look for advice and what I would have given myself years ago, I wouldn't have done it anyway because I wasn't ready for it. Because you may be wise now, 50 years later, but you're not ready. You don't take any notice when, when you are. But I think the, the one piece of advice is what do you want? What, what do you want in life? So write down what you want, what your goals are. And it, and it can be anything. It could be a house, it could be cars, it could be holidays, it can be anything at all. Now, write them all down what you want. And then 24 hours later, look at it and write some more. And then that's it. There are your goals. Now, you ask yourself, Every day. You read your goals every day. And I'm talking, I take it you're talking about a 15-year-old kid, for instance. Read your goals every day. Now, if, if one goal says I want a Rolls Royce, one goal says I want a house, one goal says I want to go on to the Bahamas or whatever, um, wherever kids go, I don't know, um, or Disney. Okay, how am I going to do that? What time frame am I going to allow how am I going to do it? Now, each day, every action that you take, you ask yourself, and this is your minute-to-minute goals you, you take, am I, with what I'm doing right now, is this taking me nearer to or further from my goal? What is my goal? My goal is to be a millionaire. So, okay, so say one of your goals is to have a million pounds. Is spending all my money and getting into debt, going to Barbados for a week, taking me nearer to or further from my goal to be a millionaire. Where it's basic, isn't it? It's taking you further from because you've got 200 pound, you're going to wherever and you're going to spend it. So it's taking you further from. Is this what I'm doing right now? Is it taking me nearer to or further from my goal? And if your goal is to learn something, be educated so you can do something, then is it taking you nearer to your goal? So that's what, that's my piece of advice to myself. And I didn't know this. So I used to go off on any tangent, anywhere, waste time. And I didn't know what I was doing because nobody told me. But, but would I have taken notice? That's an interesting thing. But if I'd have said, yes, well, what I do want is this, this, and this, and am I getting nearer to it, or is this what I'm doing taking me further from, that I think would have resonated with me. 
and and I would have channeled myself into a um, focus when you you know focus. You you are, tell your kid. I mean, this is what you can show your kids. You get a piece of paper. You get a magnifying glass. You put it and you and you wave it over the piece of paper and you say, "Look, nothing happens. Nothing happens." But now this is free because the sun is up there and the paper's there. This is it. And you can't, and you hold it still. You get the kids when they're two, two years old to hold it still and see the fire burn. And then that kid, you know, is uh, two years old, starts to understand things, and it's real to them. That concentration. Yeah, concentration, focus. focus. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, that's, that that's what I would that's say to my younger self. But that's, that's hugely appreciate your time there, Bob. It's um, all right. You're how, welcome. Can, how can people find out more about you? Uh, they can email me at nw at nevillewright.com. They can go on to nevillewright.com on the website. There's Twitter, Facebook. What else, Dawn? Is that it? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, and and um, Amazon, yeah. Great. Well, I've been, been through your, your website uh, in particular. Great website there. Lots of really helpful information. And then you've got some really insightful blogs there as well. So, uh, Neville, hugely appreciate your time and your hospitality. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Property Portfolio Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that it inspired you on the next leg of your journey. If you've got any questions or comments, why not reach out to us at our Facebook page, Equa Academy. Also, don't forget to register for free access to hundreds of property development videos and templates over at equaacademy.co.uk and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thank you. Thank you.